0: These are short psalms. There's only eight verses in 61 and 12 and 62, and uh, 63 has uh, 11, 64 has 10, so we'll go as far as we can. I have three or four prepared, and uh, we'll take this first one. This is a psalm of comfort, a psalm of comfort, Psalm 61, and it starts with a cry and it ends with a praise. And so, that's a good way to end up, isn't it? We may start out crying, but end up praising. And if you uh, notice uh, David's cry unto the Lord, he says, uh, Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. A lot of times it will do well if we'll emphasize certain words, like hear and then attend. He wanted God to hear his cry, and he wanted him to attend, give attention to his prayer. And so that means that David was not only crying to the Lord, uh, but he expected an answer to his prayer. Attend to my prayer. So that was an indication he wanted God to answer it. David did not expect help from a heathen king or a heathen god. Neither did he give way to despair, but he gave way to prayer. That would be the best thing for all of us to do in times of need. Hear my cry, O God. And it was not just a... A formal prayer. My cry. He cried out to God. And he says, Attend unto my prayer. And when we pray in that manner, God is going to hear. Jeremiah 33, verse 3. uh, Jeremiah says, Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. So if we'll call unto God, God has the answer ready for us. Remember in one case, before Daniel got through praying, the answer was there, wasn't it? Now then, in verse 2, I want you to notice. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. then doesn't make any difference where he was, what he was doing. He says, When my heart is overwhelmed, from the end of the earth, anywhere on the globe, at any time that his heart was overwhelmed, and he says, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. He knew there was stability and security in someone else other than himself, and he knew that to be the Lord. What David did when his heart was overwhelmed was to... to Cast all of his care upon God. Remember, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then Peter says, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. He sought a higher rock than himself. You know, we need more security than we can find in mortal man. Man doesn't have the security we need. Let me read a verse for you. In Isaiah 17, verse 7 says this, At that day shall a man look to his Maker, And his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. So instead of looking to man, we look to our Maker. We look to God. Sometimes we put too much confidence in men to be the answer to our problems. And David had found a shelter uh, on previous occasions in the Lord. And he said in verse 3, For thou hast been a shelter for me. Thou hast been. Notice that. What God was in the past to him, he would be now. And a strong tower from the enemy. Remember in one scripture it says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous fleeth into it and are safe. So if we flee unto God, we find him a strong tower of uh, watching over us and protecting us. The righteous fleeth into it and are safe. That's Proverbs, I believe, 18 verse 10. You might think that's the one it is. Yes, Proverbs 18:10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. And so we run into the place of safety. If you want a place of shelter, you trust in the Lord. He says, I will, uh, for thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. David had many enemies. Look at verse 4. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. The best place to abide is in the Lord's presence. David wanted to continually live in the presence of God. Uh, the Bible tells us, Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you and he says my word shall abide if you abide in me and my words abide in you then the father will abide in you as well I will abide in thy tabernacle forever and the tabernacle of old was was God's presence remember the the priest would come into the holy place the front part of the tabernacle is divided into two sections you had the holy place and the most holy place behind the veil was the most holy place and this front part was twice as large as the part behind, exactly twice as large. And uh, the priest would come in and they would replenish the table of showbread and the golden candlestick, the light, they'd take care of the light, they'd take care of the altar of incense and all the things that were to be done, but the high priest would go into the holy place, the most holy place, once a year, not without blood, and he would go And sprinkle the blood of the burnt, uh, of the brazen altar, the sacrifice out in front of the tabernacle. And sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. And there he would make atonement for the sins of the children of Israel. And the Bible tells us that there was a Shekinah glory, that God's very presence was in there. Uh, That high priest could just feel the very presence of God and the light of God's presence was in there. Remember, it had no windows. There was no natural light that was in the tabernacle, all of it was enclosed, even the uh, uh, front part, it only had the light of the golden candlestick. But when you went behind that veil, it was like you could be in complete darkness were it not for the fact that God's light lightened up that place. It was rather like a a pillar of cloud and of fire. Remember uh, that when the children of Israel were delivered out of uh, Egypt, uh, God sent them a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to give them light by night and protection in the daytime. The cloud would protect them from the heat of the sun the day and it would give them light by night. And this was, God, this was symbolical of God's presence. Well, you might say, well, preacher, what does that have to do with us today? God's Holy Spirit and God's Word is that guiding light throughout our wilderness wanderings now. We have the Word of God. The the psalmist says, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So we find that uh, God's Word furnishes that and His Holy Spirit enlightens us throughout our wilderness journey. So, if you notice this again, it says, I will abide in thy tabernacle. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. David wanted a place where he could uh, uh, be protected. If you have Psalm, not Psalm, but Isaiah 32, verse 1 and 2. It says, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. Now, verse 2 especially. Isaiah 32, verse 2. And a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, and as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Jesus is all of these things to us. What is he like? He's like a hiding place from the wind, a cupboard from the tempest. He's like rivers of water in a dry place. He's like the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. You go out in the desert area, and you find a great old rock there and a formation of rocks, and you get under the, the shadow of that rock, and it's cool. And you put your hands and you... Uh, feel of that rock, and it's it's almost cold because the top of it's absorbed the heat of the sun, and Christ has absorbed the heat of God's wrath for us, and we're in a cool and comfortable place uh, underneath the shadow of that great rock. Now, then, notice uh, verse uh, five: For Thou, O God, hast heard my vows; Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear Thy name. Thou hast heard my vows. David knew that his vows were remembered. He knew that God had heard his vows. And we're prone to forget our vows or our promises. Men are prone to do that. If you have uh, Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 25, it says this, It is a snare to the man who devoureth that which is holy, and after vows to make inquiry. In other words, he's made a vow, but he, he, he doesn't keep it. And Ecclesiastes 5 tells us in verse 4, When thou vowest to vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than thou shouldest vow and not pay. In other words, it's better if you do not promise anything than to promise something you do not intend to keep. Sometimes we talk about uh, people renewing their vows to the Lord Uh, rededicating their lives to God. Well, if they really mean business, that's well and good. But if it's just a formality and you just say, well, yes, I'm going to do better, you know, I'm going to... But you don't ask God's help. You don't seek His uh, Word. You don't seek Him in prayer. and You don't uh, seek His guidance. And you don't follow the the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's better if you didn't even vow. Just stay where you are. But if you really mean it, it's good for you to do it. And so David said in this psalm, back to the psalm now, For thou, O God, hast heard my vows. We should realize that God does hear when we make these promises. And therefore we should not make them so lightly or frivolously. You know, there's a lot of people who are great making promises, but they're not so great in keeping them. You've heard me tell about this lady in the hospital. I, I think I've told it five or six times. I'll just mention it again so you won't forget it. But I told you along in October or November, she's over there in the hospital and says, Brother Joyce, after the first year her husband was in there and you know, some of the kids had been in and out, I visited every one of them, after the first of the year, we're going to all be in church. You know, I thought, you know, October, November, December, I'm going to wait three months before you do anything for God, you know. Uh, you know, if you make up your mind to do something to the Lord, you don't have to wait until tomorrow even. You can start right now. Just say, okay. And and rededicate your life and start now doing for God. You don't have to put it off and put it off because usually, if with that kind of an attitude, you don't intend to do it anyway. And uh, to this day, they're not in church. And of course, husband's about to die with emphysema and a whole bunch of problems. But anyway, be that as it may, that's what you find. People vow. You say, "Well, preacher, you're judging." No, I'm just telling you what I, what she said. <laughs> Uh, it would be better off if we keep the word, you know. They say, I promise God I'm going to do this, you know. And it wasn't just me it was that she had made the indication she would promised God. Well, you know, we better keep our vows. David knew his vows were remembered, and we're prone to forget them. And look at verse 5. It's David's heritage. He says, Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. Thou hast given me. He had an heritage with, along with others that fear God's name. And to fear God's name, uh, he he was talking about reverence, a godly fear, standing in awe in the presence of God, fearing the name of God, knowing that God is God. And he says, I have a heritage of others that fear the name of God, that reverence the name of God, that believe in His Word, that believe in His holiness. The heritage, our inheritance. In uh, Ephesians 1, the Bible tells us that we have an inheritance. Listen. Uh, verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, upon believing, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, and what is that Spirit, which is the earnest or guarantee promise of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory? Isn't that a wonderful passage of Scripture? It says, you trusted after you heard the word of truth, this was a gospel of your own, your personal salvation, and upon believing you were resealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. Until the redemption of the purchased procession, until you're completely redeemed, your soul has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, but you're going to be redeemed from this body of corruption. Uh, Paul says in the book of Romans chapter eight, we're waiting for uh, the redemption of our body, to wit the redemption of our body. It says, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now." And it tells us not not only all creation but ourselves also who have the first fruits of the spirit. That's that earnest of the spirit. We're waiting for that redemption of our body. And if we die before the Lord uh, comes, we're going to go on to be with the Lord. The redemption uh, will take place in the sense, because we'll depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but we're waiting for that coming of Christ, which will guarantee the redemption of both the dead in Christ and the living believers that, at that time, and the redemption of all bodies, of all saints of God. Okay? Look at verse 6. David's life was extended. Thou wilt prolong the king's life and his years as many generations. It's good for God to extend our lives. God will extend them according to His grace. Old Job of old says, All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change comes. Three things. He had an appointed time, and he would serve God and be patient until the time came for that change. And you and I ought to be willing to wait and be patient and serve God content, uh, uh, consistently and and. Uh, until that change takes place. I uh, always love to hear Brother Walker mention his, uh, the Lord uh, helping us, you know, that we'd be able to serve God as long as he leaves us upon this earth. I always am thankful for the fact that, we, you know, we can't do anything after we're gone. We're going to have to do everything while we're here. And it says David ser- served his own generation by the will of God and fell on sleep. And that's what each one of us will do. We'll serve our own generation. What happens after we go? We're gone. We have no influence or no power over it, except for the testimony and the witness and the influence we've left while we're here living. And uh, we better leave that. I marvel at a man like C. H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I read his works. I have a whole set. I think fifty or fifty-eight or sixty volumes. Metropolitan uh, Tabernacle Pulpit. Can you imagine a man having enough sermons? to be read uh, for about eight or ten years after his death. I mean, every Sunday. A whole volume for a whole year at the time. He's said to be the prince of preachers. I think he's one of the greatest preachers since the Apostle Paul. But uh, some of you read after his Spurgeon, but I'm telling you, for a man like that to leave a, so a great abundance of works and his, his works still live on. Uh, I'm not a writer. Many preachers are writers, and they leave a wealth of material behind. I was marveling at Dr. Oldham's uh, writings on the book of Genesis, and he taught us through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, when I was in the seminary, and he majored in teaching uh, the first five books of the Bible, the writings of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy sums all of it up. But anyway, in teaching those, I I looked in other commentaries. Well, you know, I preached this morning on uh, Genesis 19, verse uh, 17, was it? Wherever I preached on Lot, escape for thy life. And you know, many volumes will just leave Lot and his experience completely out. Real great volumes. I'm talking about good commentaries. Author W. Pink. And he skips over from chapter uh, 18, talking about Abraham, to chapter 20, and still continuing with Abraham. And Lot is... completely skipped over. But Dr. Oldham has every detail and everything of great value concerning every verse of, of Scripture in in the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And a man like that that leaves a wealth behind, I can admire, I'm thankful for. And uh, about all I have to leave is uh, my tapes. I have a lot of tapes that I uh, almost every lesson I've been through many many times i've been through the book of psalms three times i think this is the fourth time verse by chapter by chapter and verse by verse i've been through the book of revelation at least three to four times and all on different sets of tapes for each uh, series that i went through and so that would be different different ways that you approach it and A lot of times you cover the same ground, but a lot of times you have more things to add to it. And all through the Old Testament, I think about the only books I haven't really gone through and have on tape as far as the complete volumes is maybe Ezekiel and possibly Jeremiah. I'm not sure I did Jeremiah. But some of them I've been through two or three times. And all the minor prophets, all the other prophets, and uh, all the... Uh, writings of Moses: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, First Samuel, First and Second Kings. Possibly not both of the Chronicles, but uh, uh, practically all the Old Testament and the New. But the thing about this, we need to uh, serve our own generation here, while, by the will of God. And it says in verse six, Thou wilt prolong the king's life and his years as many generations. <clears throat> verse seven. He shall abide before God forever. You see, we're before God while we're here upon the earth. And we'll ab- abide before God forever. Look in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 74. It's speaking of Christ that has come and His deliverance in verse 74 and 75. It says, "...that He would grant you, grant unto us rather, that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear. Now look, in verse 75. This is Luke 1, verse 75. "...in holiness and righteousness before Him." See that thought, before Him? All the days of our life. So we're before Him now. And that back in our psalm now, it says, uh, "...He shall abide before God forever." So we're before God now, and we'll be before God always. Some people think, well, God's only going to be present when we die and go to heaven, or when uh, Jesus comes, or in the eternal future, but we're before God now. The Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the ways of man, he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness, no shadow of death, where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. The Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. God is looking down upon us now. And he looks into our hearts and into our lives. He knoweth our thoughts are far off. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart of the very inmost being. God knows our thoughts and intentions. And he says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Do you think God doesn't know what's going on? And the, you know it amazes me when people think that God doesn't see and God doesn't know. you hear me telling about now? I, I don't know. I keep telling the same old stories and some of you have heard them and some of them haven't. In Mount Pleasantry, I met one of the ladies. she has been missing church a great deal. She's down on the sidewalk there in front of the movie house. And I walked by and I said, spoke to her. Hello, Mrs. so-and-so. And And she had her hands behind her. And uh, she said, Hello, Brother Joyce. I I haven't... She started telling about why she hadn't been in church, you know. I haven't been in church because of this and because of that. That smoke was just curling up, you know. I thought she was going to catch on fire. And finally, it got so close to her fingers, she said, Brother Joyce, I didn't want you to see me smoking. Well, she was almost smoking all over. She almost was burning. Anyway, I said, Well, you know, why do you worry about me seeing you? I said, God sees you all the time. You know, you, we can hide things from one another. And besides, I knew she smoked anyway. I knew she was doing it then. But, you know, we try to hide stuff from one another. <clears throat> and some people even try to hide it from God. But I'll tell you what. It says all things are what? Naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. He sees everything. See, he knows he knows what we look like with our clothes on or clothes off. He knows what we look like on the outside and on the inside. God looketh on the heart. He knows what's inside of us, and he, we don't have to say anything for him for it to be revealed. He knows our thoughts are far off. And so, let's not try to hide from God. The best thing any child of God can do when you're found in any wrong or any sin that's bothering you and your conscience is bothering you, is confess your sin. I mean, whatever it is, how bad it is, how awful it is, confess it straight to God. Immediately. Get rid of it. It says, He that coveteth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. And then I want you to notice down in verse 7. 7 again, he shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. Mercy and truth. Remember what uh, David said in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In verse 8 he says, So will I sing praise unto thy name forever. He still has God before him forever, that I may daily perform my vow. He says, I'm going to sing praise to your name forever, but I'm going to have to live before you day by day on a daily basis. You know, a lot of times we're trying to live tomorrow today, or we're trying to relive yesterday and do it over. You can't do over, you can't do over what you've done yesterday. And you can't live tomorrow until it gets here. All you can do is live now. And, you know, I love that song, One Day at a Time, Sweet Jesus. One day at a time. And you better take it a day at a time, because that's all all you have. Now in Psalm 62, let's look at this one quickly. This is God only. Psalm 62, God only. It says, Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. My soul waiteth upon God. Often, patience is required of us. Sometimes something we don't have a whole lot of is Patience. The Bible says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting. Uh, the Bible says, You have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you may obtain or inherit the promise. Truly, he says, Truly, my soul waiteth upon me, upon God. From him cometh my salvation. Where does your salvation come from? It doesn't come from your own wisdom. It doesn't come by your own power. It doesn't come by your own works. It doesn't come by anything that you have. It says, From him cometh my salvation. The Bible says salvation is of the Lord. Remember old Jonah down in the fish's belly? And he prayed and he said, Out of the belly of hell cried I. He speaks of they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. And he's praying about... God's uh, being far away from him, and he's calling upon God. And finally he said, Salvation is of the Lord. And that old fish threw Jonah up on dry ground. He couldn't stand it any longer. When you and I will admit to ourselves and to everyone else that our salvation is completely of the Lord. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't earn it. The wages of sin is death. He that worketh uh, not receives the blessing because God's grace is given to him. He's saved by grace. So he says, uh, from him cometh my salvation. And verse 2 says, he only. This is a psalm of only. Look at how many times only is said if you follow this psalm through. In verse uh, 4 it says, they only. In verse uh, 6 it says, he only. But look at this one, verse 2. He only is my rock and my salvation. He only is my rock. My rock. The rock. The security. The stability. The firmness. The sureness. The assurance. The rock. He said back in the previous psalm, uh, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. There's a security higher than ourselves. There's a stability that is greater than ourselves there's a stability and a surety that's greater than man. Our assurances of God. And it, it is in Him alone that is our... He is my defense. Look, He says, He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. He's the one that protects us. He defends us. He says, I shall not be greatly moved. I want to compare that and we'll come back to it in a minute. But this verse is... Somewhat repeated in verse 6, but not exactly. Look at verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Notice from verse 2 to verse 6. First of all, his confidence is building. You see, in verse 2 he says, I shall not be greatly moved. You know, God is my rock. He's my salvation. He's my defense. I may be a little bit afraid. I shall not be greatly moved. But then, when he comes to verse 6, he says, He is my defense, I shall not be moved. You see how his confidence in God is growing and is progressing? Sometimes we feel like, well, yes, we're trusting in God, and, you know, we're not going to drift very far away. It's kind of like an anchor, you know. You drop an anchor off a ship, and, you know, the ship goes around here and there. We say, well, you know, it's holding pretty good, but, you know, it's still moving. We still may be in a little danger. I wonder if it'll really hold. But then we find an anchor that's solid, he just holds you steady. You're not going anywhere. Then he comes to the place, I shall, not, I shall not be moved. And we sing a song. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure, while the billows roll, fastened to the rock, it cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And so it's an anchor that holds us safe and secure. You know, a lot of times we go around trying to hold ourselves and keep ourselves saved and keep ourselves and, and, you know, just try to, oh, we wrestle so and we flutter around so and we worry so. We think, you know, I've done the best I can, but, you know, after all, I may end up on the shores, washed on the seashores. I may end up drifting out to sea. I may end up drowning and in the deep. But we have all these various fears and thoughts. But we need to realize that God is our anchor, isn't he? I shall not be greatly moved in verse 2. And then he says in verse 6, I shall not be moved. Because God is our rock and our salvation and our defense. What more could you want? He's our stability. He saves us and he's our complete salvation. And he defends us. Then what else can harm us? What else can harm you? The Bible says, If God be for us, who can be against us? So verse 3 says, How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall shall ye be, and as a tottering fence. The ungodly always misjudge God's people. How long will ye imagine a mischief against a man? They imagine a mischief against David. He says, All of you will be slain. And he says, you're like a, a bowing wall, and it's a tottering fence. I remember one time, I think it's 1965, There's a big old uh, rock wall right above the racetrack where that house sits on the side of the hill, and this uh, Cole lived. I don't know if she's still got it, maybe she does. Big old, it's a concrete wall now, but uh, this storm came right at noon. I was just working down here on Meander Drive, building a garage, two-car garage. That storm came, and I could hardly get home. And when I, when, I came, when I went to work that morning, everything was fine. When I came back at noon, that whole rock wall, it's about, oh, 30 or 40 feet high. Great, huge wall. Rocks everywhere. The whole thing came down the mountain. And they had it pretty well built. Next time they built it with concrete and put anchors back in there and, and, uh, and braces and all kinds of stuff. And built it out of concrete. But you see, a bowing wall. You ever seen a wall out here with dirt behind it and it just cracked and bowed out? Pretty soon a big rain comes and the whole thing caves in, doesn't it? Because, and he says here, how long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall shall you be. It's going to finally crush down. And as a tottering fence, it's going to all fall to pieces, isn't it? And then verse 4. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies, they bless with their mouths, but they curse inwardly, Selah. Look Look at the condition of of these men, these ungodly men. They have a certain doom, we've already pointed that out, but look here, the hypocrisy of them. It says they only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They're always consulting to do evil. And to cast not only King David down, but cast God down from His Excellency. They delight in lies. It's bad enough to lie, but to delight in lies. They delight in it. And it says, they bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Remember James says that out of the same fountain comes forth bitter water and sweet. He says, comes cursing and blessing. In the book of James, he compares these same two things. You ever seen people bless with their mouth and curse inwardly? Talk about hypocrisy, and then they accuse people in the church of being hypocrites. We said this morning on our Sunday school lesson, there's far more hypocrites out of the church than there are in the church. Once in a while you'll find one in the church, but most of them that come, they come to worship God, and and you know, I don't find too many people that are that hypocritical that c- attend the house of God because they hear something of God's Word and it changes their attitude and their character and their being and their personality and they are different people when they come to the house of God. And when people stay out of the house of God, they start talking all of these cursing things and all of this hypocrisy and they speak these lies and delight in lies and they bless with their mouth and then what? But they curse inwardly. If that's not professing one thing and doing something else, blessing with your mouth and then cursing inwardly. And he says, Selah. What do you think of that? What do you think of those kind of people? And then verse 5. Look. He says, "My My soul, wait thou only upon God. Here's the word only again. Wait thou only upon God. For my expectation is from Him. David's only expectation is from God. My soul, wait thou only upon God. We wait upon other people. We wait upon the business world. We wait upon this one and that one and the other. Wait thou only upon God. God has a time for us to be blessed and helped. And he says, for my expectation is from him. If If your expectation is with men, or if your expectation is from the world, or if your expectation is to, well, let me put it in a real drastic way, win the lottery, you have a very little expectation... But if your expectation is from God, you have assurance that you're going to get what you need. That's where it needs to be. He's going to take care of you. He'll take care of you. But the thing about it is we get our expectation wrong, don't we? The Bible says, Without faith is impossible to please Him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, that's God that is God, and He's all-powerful. Now listen, the last part, and that He is a rewarder, of them that diligently seek Him, you not only believe that God is God, but that He's going to reward you. My expectation is from Him. I don't expect anything from anyone but God. Now, it may come through the source of men. It may come in a way that we don't understand, but it's still directly from God. He's the one that directs us. The Bible says, Promotion cometh not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the north, nor from the south. But promotion cometh from the Lord. God will promote you. God will take care of you. We never have to promote ourselves. God is going to take care of that part of me. And then, this was David's only expectation. As well as his soul waiting only upon God. Now in verse 6, we've already covered that. He only is my rock in comparing to verse 2. And my salvation, he is my defense. I shall not be moved. His confidence had gained by this time. Look at verse 7. We'll have to hurry. Verse 7. In God is my salvation and my glory. Not only salvation, but my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge. He's the rock of my strength. He's, he's the strength of, of David. And my refuge is in God. All of these things are so meaningful. You could preach a sermon on any one of them. In God is my salvation. In God is my glory. In God is my strength. In God is my refuge. It's all in God. And then it says in verse 8, Trust in Him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. See, ya. Trust in Him. We, we quote uh, Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding, and in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. But here it says, trust in him at all times. That means not just once in a while trust in him. At all times. You know, the word of God gives us great admonition, doesn't it? If we could learn to do all these things that are spoken of here, my, wouldn't it be a, a great blessing to us? Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before Him. Let your whole heart be poured out before God. Not before a priest, not before the preacher, not before a people, but before Him. When you enter into your closet you just and shut your door and you're in, in prayer with God, you tell Him everything about yourself and you let Him know that it's all open before Him. You're confessing it before God. That's pouring out your heart before God. And by the way, He knows all about it. So you just well tell Him. Because he already knows it. It's up to you to confess. And when you confess, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. He's the one we flee to. Selah. The word selah means, what do you think of that? How wonderful that is. Or it's a stop or a rest to think about it a while. Surely men of low degree are vanity men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are alive. See, men can be too low and too high. Did you know that? Paul says in the book of Romans, I believe it's the twelfth chapter, he says uh, that a man should not (laughs) think of himself more highly, listen, than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according to, as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. How are you to think about yourself and evaluate yourself? Not more highly than you ought to think. That's pride, isn't it? And, Paul told Timothy, he says, let no man despise thy youth. And he told Titus much the same thing. He says, let no man despise thee. In other words, don't be a doormat for anyone. Don't let them walk on you. But uh, Paul said in Romans 12, but to think soberly. That's that middle ground of thinking. You're not better than everyone else. and You're not worse than the scum. But you take that equal ground.